You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello. Welcome back to Prehistories. Sorry for the break in transmission in January. It was a busy one for me. I was running Archaeology 31 on Twitter, which went very well, thank you. But there wasn't much time to record a podcast, unfortunately. Today, I variously talk to several people and this will probably end up as a double episode. I'm not as prepared as I usually am as we're dipping into an area that gives me the chills. Yep, we're turning to horror, but you be warned, I am a huge softy. Well, let me welcome my many guests today. First of all, um, Dr. Simon Underdown, who is a reader in biological anthropology at Oxford Brooks. And I believe you've published quite a lot of papers on hominins and STIs in prehistory. <laughs> yep, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's one of the ways that you can use diseases to, to reconstruct how different hominins sort of bumped into each other in the past. So when things are archaeologically invisible, you can sort of get these echoes, which is quite appropriate, given what we're talking about today. You get these sort of echoes from prehistory that are recorded in diseases, but leave no archaeological signs whatsoever. That is fascinating. I mean, so you could, I mean... Obviously, we've we've found out over the last five, ten years or so that Neanderthals and humans had sexual relations and had children together. <laughs> Is that the kind of thing that you look at or do you look further back at some of the other hominin interactions? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so we, we we work with Neanderthal ancient DNA and, uh, and and look for transmission of diseases and sort of differ, uh, differential sort of uh, resistance to those diseases. So when humans came out of Africa, they brought a whole suite of diseases that Neanderthals hadn't been exposed to, and of course vice versa. Mm. But we can also go much much further back, I and mean, you can look at diseases like herpes, which have a, an interesting relationship. So there's a humans, as everybody probably knows, have two types of herpes: cold sores and and genital herpes. Mm. And genital herpes is actually much more closely related genetically to chimpanzee herpes. So when you look at the genetics of that virus, you can determine that the ancestors of chimps and the ancestors of us came into contact at some point around one and a half million years ago. Archaeologically, no signal whatsoever, but it's just this tiny little snippet recorded in the genetics of the virus. That's amazing. And does the virus then get co-opted into the nuclear genetic code or is it in into the or how, how else do you find that? This is the genetics of the virus itself. Right. So rather than it being in the ancient DNA from, say, a tooth or a bone or or a, you know dental calculus, this is actually by looking at the genome of, of, of the viruses themselves. Oh, I see. All right. So you're looking at the gene. You don't have to sequence Neanderthal DNA. You're looking at the... That's amazing. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> you also love horror, though, as well, don't you? I do. I do. Why? I, I'm a, 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 Just a, why? Well, I... I I, I, I think uh, sort of the supernatural is the friend of archaeology, isn't it? I think if you think about sites that have been protected and preserved, and it's it, it's almost you know, some of those key sites have those legends attached. And I think Mr. James was my sort of gateway drug, and sort of from there, <laughs> my 
my sort of love of, 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 of all things horror developed. Well, there you go. I obviously went down a different path. <laughs> also joining us today is Rebecca Lambert. Oh, hello. Who, hello. Hi. Hi. Now, I'm going to read out your introduction because you very kindly gave it to me and I think it's amazing. So you're a postgraduate archaeological researcher and landscape punk who wanders and ponders the liminal places of the world and is the Iliad researcher for the Underpasses Are Liminal Places project and facilitator for the Liminal Words website. You ran a, a successful crowdfund for the Underpasses of Liminal Places project uh, yeah. recently, didn't you? Which was great. You. I'd love to Thank see you. that climbing. And uh, What is it about underpasses that fascinates you? They are part of my DNA. There's no doubt about it. And they've been really special places to me since early childhood, as I'm sure many of us here was bullied very badly as a child because of like in horror and and just the the uncanny and stuff and i used to go and hide underneath the fly the i was lived initially near the m3 and there was a flyover and i used to just go and hide in that and i'd rest my back against the concrete pillars and i could feel the vibrations of the cars going over on the motorway and the cars on my level, although I couldn't see any of these things. And I would just lose myself and ponder. And what I didn't know at the time then, but subsequently found out after tests, is that I'm a synesthete. And my primary is wow. textile emotional synesthesia. And one of my, well, my two uh, so just to quickly explain what that is, if people don't know, is that certain uh, textures elicit incredibly powerful emotions from me, either positive or negative. And two of my positives, strangely enough, are concrete and stone. So I, uh -huh. I'm now sort of exploring that. I, I think that that probably had something to do with it as well. And uh I just love underpasses because they are places where transition takes place, not, you know, not just through moving within the, you know, through the spheres within, but on all different levels. And they do bear witness to many ritual acts. Yeah. In many ways, they are places that we've created for ourselves to, that, that mimic other underground spaces. And we use them in, I suppose, similar ways. Yeah, and I suppose if you want to just look at them in a straight way, they're there for pure logistics. Yeah. But I like to look at them in different ways in the sense that, you know, especially the subterranean and semi-subterranean underpasses, you're, you're, you're going from the up above, the world of light, the world of safety into the down below. Mm. And there's that trepidation and even if it's, so, you know, unconscious, it's in there, but there's that compulsion. Well, for me, I have to go in and, and, and I, you know, people write about how it's almost akin to returning to the womb and, 
and things like that. And, and, God's, and I just think they're fascinating. And I'm going to stop now because otherwise I'll take up the whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Not about them. So, but yeah, I, I love them. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, you, I think you're winning over lots of people there. Last, but definitely by no means least, I'd like to introduce David Southwell, an author and landscape punk and founder of Hookland, the amazing Hookland Guide on Twitter and the Folklore Against Fascism website. Hi, David. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Rebecca and you both describe yourselves as landscape punks. What does that mean exactly? It's a phrase I came up with and started using a few years ago. A lot of my writing is about place. Mm. And a lot of people would describe that as psychogeography. But I really started to dislike psychogeography because quite often it, it was a an academic-y, cliquey art language, which kind of excluded the primacy of just experiencing a place. And it, mm. it fetishized sort of walking and the journey to it. And, and more than anything else, it just put theories before place. And that just seemed to me quite wrong-headed. And a lot of my practice and what I would describe as landscape punk is just about having experiences of places and recording those experiences of places and a relationship with place which doesn't require a theory to be put ahead of it just be there and so it's a much more stripped down primal way of trying to experience you know our our dance with the environment I'm, I'm from Essex I'm a very simple man if I had to explain psychogeography in Essex terms it's how place makes you feel and all of these technical theoretical terms like the drift is it's just wandering around and recording how place makes you feel and so I just wanted to you know, strip it back a bit and yeah. make it a bit more accessible and not make it part of something which excluded people that if they weren't using the right words or talking about it in in theoretical terms, they could still talk about place because there is almost nothing more important to us. Yeah, I like that idea. And I I think it it could apply really well to archaeology. It could be an archaeology punk because I loathe theory and and feel like in order to be able to say anything worthwhile about the archaeology that we discover and that we talk about with each other apparently you need to be mired in in one theory or another and and i i really dislike that intensely and i know others love theory and about all of the the different ways that you can think about things uh yeah i quite like the idea of being an archaeology punk i've never thought of myself as very punk or indeed a horror fan but that's what we're going to talk about today so (laughs) i mean in many ways we're going to be talking about a folk horror very much enmeshed with landscape. And uh, I can imagine that, that the sense of the uncanny is something that we've all had in different places. As I said, I'm not really as prepared as usual for this podcast because I just can't watch horror. I don't enjoy it at all. I, I avoid it. But I don't, I can, for some reason, I can watch the old kind of British folk horror type stuff but nothing where it where it goes uh, into into really gory it all comes from i'll admit it it comes from going to a birthday party of a friend when she was 11 and her parents put on nightmare on elm street for us to watch 
at the age of 11. Uh, yeah, I, ever since then, I have not been able to watch anything like that. But I have seen Wicker Man. And um, I think that was one of the ones that we wanted to, to talk about. And it has as well a really obvious link to prehistoric things, hasn't it? The Wicker Man itself. I presume everybody has enjoyed the Wicker Man. Yeah, Wicker Man is just, well, it's, it's canon, really, in a way. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I, I first saw that film. Um, it's funny, it's funny you were saying about Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> because um, obviously my dad wouldn't have let me watch anything like that, but he had absolutely no qualms about sitting me down in front of Wicker Man and other classic folk horror tales from about the age of six. I think he, I can't remember exactly what he said, something about, you know, this is your learning or something. It's like, okay, this might sound very bizarre that the most terrifying and upsetting thing for my young self when watching it, and actually still now, is uh, is when Edward oh I better not do a spoiler alert in case anyone hasn't watched it but um <laughs> when we're at the, the the final sort of big set piece um and we see the wicker man and the person who ends up in the wicker man that didn't bother me I was more upset that there were little pigs in the wicker man and they were going to get barbecued and my dad just found that really hysterical but yeah, sorry, that's me rambling. No, um, no, no. But yeah, it's not at all. Oh, it's an incredibly important, yeah. yeah, and it's an incredibly important film in so many ways. You know, Christopher Lee's character. This, that you you have the sort of modern world of Edward Woodward's police sergeant coming over to Summer Isle to find Rowan, this wee girl who has gone missing, mm. and you've got this community who are living in, in, in harmonies and, and, and so on. But to him, it's perceived as, um, what's the word? Uh, it, it's wrong. It's, it's, it's anti-God. It's deviant. And it's, it's, and, and he's a very religious character and it's his, it's his uh, God given duty that he has to rectify what he considers wrong. And um, and this thing of like modernity against the ancient and so on. And it's, for me, I, I just find it very interesting. I'm sure Simon and David have got some really interesting insights on that too. So Yeah, I think it, one of the really interesting things is that clash between this Christianity and perceived paganism surviving. It's just so interesting to think that there there is this feeling for the past five, certainly 500, 600 years, that paganism has continued in some way in the, in the you know, tucked away corners of different bits of Europe. And I don't know why this, is, this persistence that paganism has continued is there. Surely that's, I mean, obviously it's not, not root, well, I think it's not rooted in facts, but <laughs> why, why do we believe, why do we want to believe so much that there's paganism in the, Isles and the tiny little villages and the, you know, in the forests of of Europe. I, th- I think a lot of it is Margaret Murray uh, fantasies, and the impact of the Margaret Murray fa- fan- Margaret Murray fantasies on modern Wiccan thinking, and that and that's a large part of it. A, right. lot, a lot of it is, I think, also people want, 
you know, to to have some sense of being grounded in an authentic tradition, a place in history. They are the the modern link in a line of transmission which goes way way back, and. That's a very powerful need for some people, and that creates narrative, and those narratives are often entirely fictional. I would argue that we are quite pagan. I think if you scratch a lot of us, we are slightly animist still. Mm. You know, folklore is a living thing. Superstitions persist, and they persist and they carry through because they deliver something to us, some sense of comfort, some sense of connection. For some people, it, it, it's a sense of delivering in, in terms of sort of magical outcomes. But quite often, you know, whether it's in an urban environment, rural, rural environment, I think a lot of us are quite animist at heart. But that isn't pagan in the sense that it's portrayed in, say, the Wicker Man. And I think the Wicker Man relies an awful lot on a sense of paganism, which comes very much from the Margaret Murray School of Scholarship, and even further back to the Golden Bough. And, mm. you know, we now are in a place where we can go, yeah, historically, this is not really very accurate at all. But the story has seeped deep into the culture. Yeah. And seeped deeply into the horror culture and i think you know we we sit in modern a lot of modern wiccanism where they you know they want to claim an authentic continuity with the past which just isn't justifiable yeah yeah i mean it's similar with druidism isn't it this ability the 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 wiccan religion and the and druidism both being kind of resurrected and claiming that link to a historical prehistoric past just they're very Mm. modern constructs Mm. Uh, simon i guess you you uh, you've watched the wicker man at some point in your life (laughs) i have i mean no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was just much struck by something David just said there, really, about the sort of the sort of continuity. And interesting, although you know, ideas like Druidism don't have, you know, they don't have that link because, of course, there isn't that that, that continuity. The, the folktale sort of tradition is is, of course, really, really deep. There was some fantastic work done by a, 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 an archaeologist called um, uh, Jamie Tarani, who's up at Durham, and he used a, a technique called phylogenetics and applied it to the folk tradition or the you know the, in, in, in Europe. And their, their results suggest that some of these sort of uh, folk tales that we've all grown up with in, in varying different sort of types in, you know, say Germany or England, you have those subtle sort of variations. You know, some of these go back all the way to the Bronze Age. Yeah. So I think that there's been a continuity of story and the, the, these ideas of sort of other and corner of the eye sort of not feeling comfortable in certain places. And that's so enmeshed in in, in, in all of our cultures that films like the, 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 the Wicker Man can sort of play to that. And that there's a universal sort of language in there even if perhaps we're not except not recognizing on a on a surface level it's speaking to these much deeper traditions we've grown up with which is why it's such a such an unsettling and 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 really compelling film and we all have embedded in the museum of dna concepts of sacrifice concepts of higher powers Mm. concepts of of a priesthood we all have a, a sense of the ghostly the haunting and i think these are cave old stories you know, mm. and folklore is a living tradition, and it just every few years it changes its jacket. But it's the same basic stories, <laughs> um, and I think quite often it's fulfilling the same basic needs. And I think a lot of the horror in the Wicker Man is that sense of even if it's not a cultural representation we're familiar with before we see the film, we absolutely understand the idea of sacrifice mm. and of taking a life to achieve a wish. 
is so deeply embedded in us. So it resonates and it has huge power. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, Simon, you're saying about those stories going back to the Bronze Age. That was a there was a study, wasn't there, about fairy tales? Yeah, and their yeah. shared elements across a very wide region, wide family of languages to to kind of try and work out how far back they they actually went. And yes, that was amazing. And I mean, if you think of fairy tales as well, they're not particularly nice in a lot of ways. They are, you know, there's some quite, especially some of the earlier versions of them before they were sanitized by a Disney and so on, are pretty vile and pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, so uh, yeah, there is this, yeah, maybe, maybe we are more pagan than we think. And we do, you know, still think about animals having souls. We get very attached to certain animals, don't we? And we believe in signs and symbols and things like that, which I'm, I'm not saying, I mean, that, I think that's something that just is in a, all of us. Um, there's also, though, in Wicker Man, I mean, this idea of a wicker, a man, a, a huge giant made out of wicker at Willow, in which animals and humans are set on fire, is it does come from classical sources, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't... Oh, crikey, who was the chap who wrote the account of the the Roman invasion to Julius Britain? Caesar. Oh, Tacitus. Well, there, there's... Uh, t- no, Tacitus, uh, Tacitus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, Julius Caesar does it first, doesn't it? And doing Claudius's incursion. Mm, yeah, Tac- mm. is it? Yeah, yeah Tacitus. Tacitus. Yeah. I guess the, the, the notions that we have of the Druids is, is all based initially, primarily even from his descriptions mm. isn't it because obviously we there's there was no written records at that time or anything around that so you know i, I think we really don't know i think whether it's from tacitus Pliny the elder strabo cicero i think whenever they're mentioning it it's anti-druid propaganda mm. exactly and i think exactly. i think also there was i think one of the the defining images is actually much later i don't know if you know it there's an 18th century illustration of the wicker man done by i think it was thomas pennant where you it's sort of this big giant with a very human head yeah and, and it's being set alight yeah. and i think that almost sort of gives a physical visual shape to this sort of anti-druid propaganda and mm. it was still being repeated right up until the 18th century yeah and so it, i i think yeah it's it's a very old idea, and it's a, and it's and it's a, and it, it comes from you know you know Strabo and Cicero and these very old sources. I think it, it was comes as part of their partly out of whether it has a reality beyond, or it was just very much of them wanting to portray the Druids as bizarre, yeah, uh, and 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 sort of savage, and, and sort of it you know typical sort of sort of almost colonial propaganda yes exactly. exactly although you know those those romans did some pretty horrific things as well i think also what's so interesting about it is that they do mention quite uh, quite a few sources as you say strabo um julius caesar and so on mentioned the the fact that they do this but they seem to be copying each other's work so they're looking back at other sources they haven't actually seen it themselves firsthand but they're writing what other people have said Uh, But what they do also talk about is um, headhunting and taking the heads of their enemies and displaying them. And that there is there is archaeological evidence definitely for that in the later Iron Age. Well, maybe earlier as well. So, you know, maybe maybe 
Wicker Man did happen, but... It's a good example of, to the Romans, the Wicker Man was already folklore. Mm-hmm. And and we tend to forget that, you know, that it, it's become, you know, more modern folklore, more modern. But the headhunting being based on fact, but it becomes folklore. The Wicker Man, again, may have been based on a, a factual reality. But for the Romans, it's it sort of passed amongst the various sort of accounts as a very folkloric tale. You know, they haven't seen it personally. They don't know anybody who's been sacrificed in this manner. But they're very happy to tell the story yeah. because it's a great big piece of folklore it's wonderful it's everything a good story you know told in the tavern or across the fire should should it has yeah people want to tell these others who do these terrible things beware if you go to these places these you know at the fringe of empire places these things still happen it's a great folkloric tale even for the romans you know i mean obviously it wasn't the empire at that point. But when the Romans went into Carthage and, and, you know, what they, the propaganda, I'd say that they were promoting about the cult of Tanith and things like this. I mean, it's What's the just, cult of Tanith? You know, have- so I'm not an expert in this, but Tanith is, for the Carthaginians, was a, a moon goddess. She was one of their primary deities they had that sacrifices would be made to Tanith. And I believe if I remember rightly, well, this is actually when I say remember rightly, this is what the Romans were saying. So we have to take this with a very big pinch of salt that the Carthaginians would sacrifice children to Tanith. But again, like as Davis was saying in relation to the Druids, we don't know if that, was happening because we only have the Romans um, yeah, only their words. words for that. But it, but it almost strikes me as if like that by portraying these different peoples in, in these, you know, almost penny dreadful like ways, it, it, it sort of then justifies the Romans going into these countries and taking them down basically and assimilating them because they're doing it for the good of everyone else in a way. Yeah, we're going to come back to this thought because I've had had a thought, but we've got to take a little break now. And when we're back, then we're going to expand on this thought and then also look at some other horror stories and how they incorporate some of these older tales into the horror that they create for us. And we're back. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking, Rebecca, with that cult of Tanith, it does seem like the colonial, and I think you mentioned it before, David, as well, colonial playbook or oppressor playbook is to have these stories of human sacrifice to justify certain things happening. The takeover of a country usually, and it's this, it's the same with in in the Kingdom of Benin in 1897 when the British Empire went in and, and um, basically killed lots of people, stole all of their treasures, um, and took over. And it was it was done with those the same kind of tales about the religious practices in Benin at the time and how abhorrent they were to the Brits. It was just a complete smokescreen for for them wanting to control that particular area. So um, it does seem to be one of those, yeah, we've got to look at at something like Wicker Man and see it as a similar thing. But what's really interesting is uh, Butzer Farm burn a Wicker Man, not with anyone in it, (laughs) 
<laughs> I hope. <laughs> every every May, don't they? Has anyone been? They do. I haven't personally, I, um, but I have friends who go regularly mm. you know, when it's allowed and they love it. They absolutely love it. I am going to try and get to one. And of course, you've then got Kenny Brophy's and Gavin McGregor's Build and Burn projects up in uh yeah yeah they often on the isle of Arran, isn't yeah. it yeah yeah i think yeah. i mean burning is obviously a very f- a spectacular thing to watch and i think they usually do it as i say beginning of may beltane sometimes have a different creature that is bu- made out of wicker that is burned um but it's it's part of the folklore of of the iron age for us as well, isn't it? That we don't know that they did this, but it makes a good spectacle. So we'll do it for the punters, you know. But <laughs> most of British folklore uh, at some level revolves around beer and bonfires. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether, <laughs> whether it's modern reconstructions or it's things which have continued on as community events for hundreds of years, you can guarantee at the end of it, at the wind down, at the post party, however you look at it, there is beer and there is a bonfire. Whether it's midsummer, whether it's the bone horse, whether it's midwinter, mm. whether it's May Day, whether it's bonfire night, it's beer and bonfires. It's mm. that's that's how communities come together, they bond. There's usually a fantastic folkloric story to justify it, but what it really comes down to is we're gonna have a beer and we're gonna have a big, big bonfire. <laughs> and that's that's intrinsic and i have to believe that that's continued on yeah. from the bronze age that that's at least you know yeah and, and beyond because mark Absolutely. edmonds writes about that so beautifully doesn't he in neolithic geographies ancestral geographies mm. of the neolithic he writes about it beautifully simon do you think that goes back even further I'm, I was just thinking exactly that. I mean, that, that idea of place is so central to, 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 to being human. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you could push back even further than, 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 than mm. our own species, Homo sapiens. You, you can see evidence of, of, of fire and sort of, I, I, I've hesitated to use the word home in, in, in a two-loaded sense, but you have that, that sort of central place in Neanderthal. You have evidence in, uh, in places like Kezem Cave at Israel 300,000 years ago of resources, meat resources, other things being brought back to a central place where there's a fire so i think that that sort of universality of, of fire and uh, and sort of getting together for, for for any excuse just to be together as, as david was talking about is is really such a universal thing for, for all humans really and it goes back hundreds mm. of thousands of years i think you're right I, i've got so many links now in my brain that are just firing off i mean um if we if we try and update wicker man i mean obviously there was the more recent version that we won't speak about but <laughs> even though it has the most wonderful Nicolas Cage in it the which I haven't seen I have to say but there was Midsommar I I feel that that Midsommar film it seems to have been it has a I haven't watched it so you can because it looks too scary for me um but so you can definitely you know um uh, correct me on this but it feels like it has a lot of the same vibes you know as as um Wicker Man you're going to a, a rural kind of isolated community there's some kind of ritual at a certain time of year some maybe involves human sacrifice is that is that kind of the gist of it i personally haven't seen it so i can't comment i'm afraid i i think i am one of the few people in the horror community who really really dislikes midsummer 
It's all surface glamour. It has the emotional depth of cappuccino froth. It is unpleasantly anti-pagan. And it's a very tepid remake thematically of The Wicker Man. And you just think, yeah, it's an awful film. It looks good. It's well acted. It's beautifully scored. It's technically, it's wonderful. The story is awful. And you just, yeah, it never needed to be made. I just can't stand it. And I'm, I know I'm, you know, amongst, you know, my contemporaries who write horror, etc. I am odd for that opinion. But it's, yeah, no, not for me. It really mm. isn't. Simon, what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to agree with David, I'm afraid. I mean, it, as, as you said, it, it looks absolutely beautiful. But I think, whereas if, if, if we contrast it with The Wicker Man, which, which is a very claustrophobic film in many ways, it, it's a very sort of tightly written, very sort of um, focused story. Uh, uh, Midsummer's all over the place. You know, I, I think from a, from a script point of view, it, it's, it's very, very badly written. If I can just be an academic nerd for a moment, there's a bit halfway through where graduate students are talking about changing their subject just on the fly and it's just sort of little <laughs> silly details that you know just 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 irk before you even get to the to the problems with the story but you don't get that with with something like the wicker man which is so so tight and the script was clearly very very carefully written whereas i think midsummer was someone's great idea and then it's just not been executed particularly effectively Ah, I see. So I I am not going to worry about not having watched it then. <laughs> but it, it does it's it is like this update of Wickman as you say and it's the, it, just this this feel that as we were saying those those tales about paganism and uh, and so on continue. I, I'm interested, David, in the way in what you said about how it represented paganism in a negative way. I watched the Legends of the Witch, Legend of the Witches, I think it was the other day, which was the famous uh, almost documentary docudrama, I think they call it, about Alexander's the King of the Witches in the 1970s, and um, how they he reenacted with lots of lovely nubile young actors um, <laughs> uh, an, an initiation into. Wicker and then uh, the famous Black Bass and things like that, and it seemed like they were definitely they were such a propaganda film for for paganism and Wicker. Uh, it was amazing to watch. There was an awful lot of witch witch exploitation in <laughs> yeah. the seventies, and it's it, it's a it's a whole genre in itself, and it's not for the faint hearted for very many reasons. Yeah, <laughs> one of the things. People have tried, and some absolutely some of the cleverest people I know, like Adam Scoville, have tried to define what folk horror is. And, you know, usually it comes down to three films, Blood on Satan's Claw, Witchfinder General, The Wicker Man. And they start to sort of say, well, what do all of these films share? And they quite often say, oh, and it's, you know, communities which are morally, you know, different to the norm, etc. And you're thinking, well, it's a very dismissive view of paganism you know the paganistic practices and and the animistic heart of you know some communities and it's sort of like somehow it, they are in the wrong mm. and i and i think a lot of people have struggled to define folk horror i mean as somebody who's often accused of being a practitioner of it i would say that folk horror is an active infection of the past and place and it's very much i i see most horror can be reduced to uh, and unearthing. And um, mm. that's quite, you know, one of the big connections I see between archaeology and the horror genre is that sense that all horror is an unearthing. But folk horror for me is an absolute refusal to 
use folklore just as tinsel to a yeah. story. It's a part of the integral infrastructure, a vector of that infection of, of past and place into the present. I think that's one of the things that, again, I don't like about Midsummer. It, it doesn't really have a sense of place. It doesn't have a genuine sense of the past. The Wicker Man, you have an absolute sense of that island and you have an absolute sense of the beliefs and the past that we are meant to understand has run in that island and how it inf infects the now. And Midsummer is very, you know, generic. There is no great sense of place and it's a very artificial sense of past and it doesn't feel convincing. And I think mm. that's one of the big disparities between it and the wicker man it looks beautiful but it doesn't have a sense of place doesn't have a sense of past and That's therefore really it doesn't really work as folk horror i would say as yeah definitely with the wicker man there's that deep stratigraphy of folklore isn't there it's it's just it's inherent it permeates everything i mean it's just yeah it's beautiful yeah. Um, it's interesting you mentioned blood on Satan's claw and the sense of unearthing, which which is, uh, you know, central to that story, isn't it? Where the, they've, um, it's set in 18th century England. Again, I haven't seen this. Uh, I, w I might watch this, actually, because it sounds really interesting. Someone finds a skull whilst out ploughing, and it's a very odd-looking skull, and then a claw is unearthed at some point, and then various other things happen and that's that's really you know as a as an archaeologist uh, finding bones and human bones can give you that sense that kind of uncanny feeling but you see I, I worked on a on a cemetery excavation many years ago it's still ongoing it's one of those ones it's in Norfolk I'm sure many people will know it and during the daytime it's absolutely fine you can you can dig up the human burials and you're very respectful towards those those past humans but at night you're you're sleeping on an unexcavated part of the cemetery and it's infested with moles and moles would come up underneath my tent when I was camping there and scratch on the underside of the tent and in the middle of the night the only thing you could think is that that was one of the Saxon skeletons coming out of the grave and trying to get into your tent <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got I think I've got too active an imagination but uh, no, run with it run with it <laughs> Uh, but it, it, there's something about the about definitely about nighttime in in these horror films, obviously. But 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 yeah, that unearthing of past people and bits of people, which must have happened so frequently in in the pre-modern. I mean, I suppose that's early modern, isn't it? 18th century. But and and what people thought of that. And it's happening now, isn't it? Because uh, I was reading yesterday that a farmer up on Orkney mainland who uh, is based uh, just close to Scalabray mm. was out ploughing up the field and has unearthed a, a near intact, absolutely beautiful kissed burial. Um, oh, wow. You know, so it's still happening, isn't it? Yeah. I, I always think about the bog bodies being discovered, actually, and how yeah. weird those must be. Yeah, yeah. Because they just look alive, don't they? Just like they're asleep. And yeah. you don't, don't want, it's almost like you don't want to touch them in case you wake them up. Yeah. Unearthing humans then. I mean, um, Simon, it, I, I did a, another podcast about uh, William Golding's The Inheritors. Mm. Uh, a couple of years ago and in 
many ways. For some reason, it brings that up to me because there is a point in the book, The Inheritors, if anyone hasn't read it or or listened to the podcast, because you know, you might not have, um, <laughs> is um, about a group of Neanderthals, I think, probably in Europe. And suddenly these other creatures come into their world and they have to try and avoid these, these other people who are homo sapiens. And that was... A, very that was a terrifying book to read to see humans from another hominin's point of view and but at one point in the book one of the characters digs to bury someone and I think finds earlier burials there as well don't they I don't know if you've read it actually (laughs) I I have but not for many many years but again that's a lovely sort of image to to play with isn't it this idea of, of the Neanderthals you know we're always regarded as, as other, somehow not like us. And there was a sort yeah. of in, in, implicit sort of almost brutish notion, sort of uh, monster sort of uh, sort of focus placed on the Neanderthals. And, you know, then they're like us, but not. And, you, can, you know, there, there's so many themes in horror that sort of emerge from that, from that sort of idea of something that's a yeah. bit like us, but not. And the, the poor old Neanderthals famously caught the... Uh, Caught the uh, the displeasure of, uh, of 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 the first people to discover it, the the first one in eighteen fifty six or so, and yeah, they they've been labelled as this ever since, and you know, mm-hmm. Golding really played with those with those themes in the Inheritors, as indeed he did, of course, in, in some of his other works. You know, things like Lord of the Flies, that that sort of being so close to 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 sort of you know a, you know absolute being sort of um you know not human and just sort of things unraveling really quickly, things he played yeah. with really quite well. He did. It was amazing. I love that book. But the so that turns up in quite a lot of horror, including one of these one of these really classic films, Blood on Satan's Claw, about the bits of something that doesn't look quite human. It looks slightly animal, more animalistic than us, yeah, and then causes lots of problems. David, is the is the film? Well, uh, tell us more about it. It's a film I've never watched. Yeah. Of the big free folk horror films, the only one I can have a deep, utter joy for is The Wicker Man, yeah. uh, which find a general beautiful depictions of landscape. But for me, it's just too, uh, it's torture porn, and it's just not for me. That's not my type of horror. And um, people I know and who I respect as having great insight on film and great insight on horror have said to me, yeah, Blood on Satan's Claw, it's okay, but it has a very uh, misogynistic, sexual predatory, mm. you know, theme that um, you're not going to like, David. And so I've listened to their advice and I've avoided it. I, I, ah. I, I know the story inside out and I, and I think, yeah, it's probably not a film for me. And again, that's you know, probably odd in terms of horror writers. It, it, yeah, but it's, it is a film about not just, you know, something being unearthed, but it, it's and the impact that has, and I think it, it in many ways it, it it does go back to that sense that you know we really are the monster, and the unearthing is is the catalyst for revealing just how monstrous we can be, which is a very common theme in horror. It's certainly there in the Inheritors. It's certainly there in Lord of the Flies, and I think you know it's that unearthing of you know the older us, the past, you know the the the, the brutish. You know the, the need, the willingness to 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 do anything, to be mm. absolutely blood soaked, to survive, being unearthed, and, and and civility, and the fragility of society, 
being disrupted by finding something is a very, very common theme in horror. And that's certainly, to me, the core of Blood on Satan's Claw. Something is uncovered, which, as you say, would have been very common. You know, when you were when we have a relationship where we are plowing the soil with animals, but there is a human plowman. It's not in a cab. It's not, you know, above the field. It's walking the fields at the same time. Fines would have been numerous, you know, mm. and, and quite often they would have been strange and wondrous objects. It's the, you know, the mesolithic arrowheads, which were, you know, described as fairy shot. You know, the, the objects were turned up and, and took on, you know, folkloric power and in sort of very strong power. So I think it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of people are, are huge fans of it. Not a film for me, but it, it's certainly something which has in, impacted on the folk horror genre. But I, I think itself, the themes it deals in, the unearthing, you know, that as a catalyst for, you know, showing us just how nasty we can be, is, is a pretty common theme in horror even before we were committing, you know, film horrors. It, it's a deep literary theme and it's a deep folkloric theme. Mm. It's interesting because I, I thought that most horror was about the other, but it's interesting, yeah, that it, 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 it is actually that the other brings out the terror in us. And it's the same in The Inheritors, that the horror for these poor Neanderthals ends up being us, you know, homo sapiens. I mean, it's much like the themes that get played within The Crucible. It's that idea of, 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 of yeah. what society turns on itself. And, and as, as David said, that, that's the sort of, that's the implicit horror there is what we can become in such a short space of time. Yeah. And I'd argue you can see that in H.G. Wells' stories. Uh, I, you, you can, I, I, if you, if you sort of look at sort of, you know, he's, you know, the Martian invasion, the Martians are awful. But as much, it's the horror of the crowds fleeing London, the disarray, the, the soldier who, you know, the, the characters are, are, are in some ways are the most the strongest in that and, and the most horrible are humans. You know, the, the Martians are doing it with a cold indifference. You know, that, that it's, it's much worse when it's one of your own doing it. That sense, I think, quite often in worlds of, you know, stripping down the layers of civility to reveal something quite bestial. And it's there in Quatermass, uh, especially Quatermass and the Pit. You know, yes, we, 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 I saw we, that recently. Yeah, the yeah. I think the one of the strongest ideas is we are unearthing ourselves quite often when the past is presented to us, or when the past is you know violently breaks through. It reveals just who we are, and we often don't like that. And maybe that's why it's been buried. Yeah, I think that's absolutely that's one of the you know the and and and. There is that is that quite often that sense of you know do we actually want to meet the dead, and 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 we we do, and it's not just the archaeologist who has that desire to unearth the past. It, it, it's something that I think we all share. There's, we all know that there is a raw primal power, being there and seeing the mummy, seeing the bog body, seeing the artifact, and it, and it is this portal, this wonderful bridge, outside of the now. But it, it's thrilling. But it also there's, there is something slightly sinister about it to us. And I think maybe that's the percolation of the taboos of death and why we bury people and why we had specific places of death in the first place. And here we are completely disregarding them, disinterring, putting them in museums, you know, commodifying at one level. And uh, that's it's quite a horrific breaking of taboos. Which and I think the taboos of death are maybe some of our first taboos, 
and they have been with us a very long time. And so I, I think there's a lot of power that a lot of horror films, a lot of horror stories take from that breaking of that taboo when you meet the dead in the terms of archaeology. I mean, it's, it's interesting that in, um, in um, Arthur Conan Doyle's story, Lot, Lot 249, the sort of the, 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 sort of the beginning of the mummy sort of horror tradition, again, you've got this sort of incredibly powerfully described sort of a, a, a sort of a you know, terror in the form of the Egyptian mummy, but the absolute sort of evil protagonist of the of the piece is, is, is not the mummy. It's the it's the sort of the twisted student Edward, what's his name, Edward Bellingham, who's sort of pursuing all of the all these dark arts for nefarious ends. And again, it's that sort of coming back down to its people, not the monster, which are the yeah. horrible thing. And also, you know, when we have written accounts of the good old Brits going to Egypt, especially in the 19th century, mummy hunting. And I can't remember the name of these two women. There was, But there's two English women who went to the Valley of the Kings to uh, collect a mummy, so to speak, and literally just on the boat going, you know, downstream towards Cairo, literally just tearing this mummy apart to uh, get their hands on the, you know, the amulets and so forth that were that were wrapped within, you know, the bandages, the linen, mm-hmm. um, and 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 there's multiple accounts of then these these people because they're you know they're living they were living breathing people who had hopes and dreams just like us, just being discarded, you know, metaphorically and physically thrown into the Nile because the hunters have have got what they've wanted and now they're just like, you know, getting rid of the carcass, so to speak. And, you know, I find it really disturbing. I mean, you know, really horrific. To me, that is horror, proper horror. Yeah. I mean, there has been um, a a kind of change in some of the – I'm not sure it's completely taken hold, but there is a change – in the way that we approach displaying human re- remains, I think, and that that is making its way through museums, and the idea that you must have a license now to in order to be able to store human remains, but of course that you know the collection of hum- remains of people who were not who were seen as other by the nineteenth century explorers and colonizers are still held in many places, although they're being returned to and repatriated to some of their source communities. But yeah, there is that that horrific treatment of human remains is you, you kind of, I think, get slightly inured to it. Or I did I think I was probably when I after undergraduate, but it, mm. it, it, you become um it's it has the kind of the the ethos around it has changed a lot recently. Mm. And maybe mm. I was quite blase to start with about digging up people but those are you know as you say it is that unearthing people who didn't want to be unearthed (laughs) yeah and I think I think as well I mean I I volunteered at the Peachy Museum of Egyptian Archaeology for five years and we have uh sorry we they (laughs) (laughs) have on display a young chap who was buried within a large pot and it's the only human remains that are on display and he does get a lot of, a lot of attention and uh, people wanting to have their photos and, and, and so on. And, and whenever I was doing uh, gallery engagement 
and and so on. I would say to people, you know, you have to remember this this chap. You know, he died in his twenties, but he was somebody's son. You know, he he lived, he worked, he hopefully loved and laughed. Mm. And he's now here. He was removed. He he was lovingly buried by his, you know, his family, his friends. And, you know, they expected him to remain there for eternity. And if they could see where he is now, if he could see where he is now, that would be deeply upsetting. And, you know, so we have to remember it doesn't matter if someone died... 50, 500 or 5,000 years ago, we have to respect these individuals. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very emotive subject and quite rightly so. Yeah, I mean, I know at the Pitt Rivers Museum, there's always a public demand for seeing the shrunken heads, but the curator for the Americas has been saying for years that they should be, because she's in contact with the source communities, uh, you know, really that they should. Shrunken heads have gone. They they were they were taken. Yeah, away. they've gone. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, I did see that, Laura. I saw Laura talk about that. So, but there there was just such a resistance by some people in the museum because mm. the public wanted to see them. And similarly, as you, like you were talking about Egyptian remains, they have a mummy at the Pit Rivers, and at the top of the sarcophagus was always raised so that you could see the remains. But that's been closed now, I believe, as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still there. Mm-hmm. And we we are huge. I mean, there is this need to be respectful, but we are so interested in people's remains, aren't we? And we and I think that we are, you know, we have curated all of these people into our museums and in a in a similar way to the Neolithic people curating all, lots of human remains into their lives yeah but yeah maybe maybe in a slight it's not it's not as respectful as that so yeah and I guess yeah. as well though within a Neolithic context obviously we can't say for certain I mean there, there are no absolutes in archaeology either but I would imagine that because of the culture when people would expect that when they passed over that their bodies would be treated in sort of certain ways so mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been something that if they could look down on on proceedings from wherever after they've passed over it wouldn't be shocking to them or you know um, invasive whereas people who are publicly displayed within museums but also stored within museums you know those cultures those they absolutely no say in that no, so indeed. it's you know i i think yeah it's it's something that has um troubled me for the longest time but as you say there's this almost ghoulish drive to see bodies it's it's uh, uh, and it brings in these aspects of the gaze doesn't it and stuff it's um yeah it's it's and yeah. It's an interesting thing. To use a slightly clunky comparison, I remember the museums of the 70s being much, much worse than they are now, where there is a sense of a growing a sensitivity, a growing debate, a growing engagement with these issues. But they used to be, it was like, if you look at zoos in the 1970s, you used to have 
you know, chimpanzees' tea parties. You yeah. could feed buns to elephants. You could mm. ride on elephants. You could ride on camels at the zoo. And I'm sure if you were a zoo offering that now, you would have a very ready audience for it. We have a natural inclination and obsession with the ghoulish, with the dead. That's a huge driver of, of people having an interest in the uncanny and horror and all these things. But sometimes, you know, that has to be, we have to say, well, okay, well, let's have a discussion about whether that's appropriate. We know it's there. We know we all like a bit of the sinister. You know, the dark is attractive. You know, we we get that. But there's, it, sometimes we have to have, you know, discussions about limits and about, you know, have we gone too far? Is this too far? Is this too much? And yes, we mm. want to see it, but should we? And um, at least I think we're having those debates now. And I, I think also, you know, in terms of the, you know, the horror communities, there is a lot more sensitivity, hopefully, developing towards cultures and ideas and where, where does some of the folklore come from? And should it be, you know, commodified and turned into story and used in certain ways without representation, without consideration, without conversation with the cultures that it comes from? Um, and I think that's a useful place to be at now um and mm. a necessary place and it is always kind of cheering when you know sometimes the museum says look we know you want to see the shrunken heads or the skull or the giant's bones or you want mm. to touch the mummy or be able to see its skin but actually no and and and, and, and you know sometimes it you know we, then we can go and sulk like teenagers or you know children and we can't see what we want to see but yeah yeah, you know, it's 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 reassuring to me that that happens and is happening more. Yeah, I think it would be quite interesting when the the Hunterian Museum in London reopens. I think is that due to reopen this year or next year after massive renovations because the Irish giant was mm. was a centerpiece for them. And there's been lots of um discussion about that you know, he he should be laid to rest because especially, I can't remember his name and that's really dreadful, but when he asked his friends to bury him at sea in a lead-lined coffin because he knew that there were going to be people coveting, that's right, coveting his bones for yeah. display. So I, I think that, you know, I hope that the Hunterian, you know, have a, a good long hard think about this and and grant him his wish because we know that that's what he wanted absolutely agree when i i went to the hunterian in its, its last days in its old format and charles bernie's was being displayed right up yeah. until you know it closed yeah in a freak show way yeah and 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 without almost any sense of irony because you know the display would say he didn't want his bones you know his body to go to science and here it is in the Hunterian and you're going yeah you've got Charles you are articulating that Charles Byrne didn't want this and he's on display uh, and it the Hunterian as it was was a very it was a fascinating museum but you you knew a lot of the people that were coming there is like I, I want to look at the you know it's a very morbid it was a very morbid desire it was it was it it's was fetish almost yeah uh, mm. it, 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 it was it was it was certainly not shy of allowing certain people to be sated by um 
seeing a lot of bones and a lot of skulls and uh, and to see you know charles Byrne, you know displayed as a as a as a freak you know yeah. and it's like yeah it, it was a very uncomfortable place in its last few days mm. certainly for me it's mm. a fascinating museum there's so much more to it and yet the focus very naturally was on on, on the bones yeah and, and, it was. It was quite a centrepiece, wasn't it? And, and there, is, there is always something slightly... It, it, it's very different. If you go to an ossuary, where there is still some sort of preservation of a sense of religiosity and of, you know, the wishes of the dead at some level, to then seeing the same sort of displays in harshly lit cabinet. We had some problems recording this podcast with people's Wi-Fi. So at one point we lost Dr. Simon Underdown. We continued with Beck Lambert and David Southwell, which was absolutely great. And we will be putting that out next month. And I hope to be able to speak to Lauren and Simon a little more as well to add to that episode. I hope you've enjoyed us this rambling discussion about folk horror and more widely the use of archaeology in the creative world. I think that this is something that has come out of the discussion about horror because of this very deep sense of the past being used to terrify us in all these stories, you know, the plays, the books, the films, and sometimes the past is used for other things to inspire us. But the past is always used. And I think we need to be so aware of that, that the past and the past is being used to certain ends at the, the moment and some ends are not very desirable and need to be worked against as far as we can. And the past is always political. Archaeology is political. There's no sense in saying, oh, I want to stay out of politics because it's important to stand up for the good use of archaeology and the past and not its misuse. Stand against the misuse. Sorry, so this got a very, very serious indeed. But we will try and talk in the next podcast a bit more about some more horror genres and particular films and books that bring out other aspects of the past and how it affects us, particularly looking at hopefully some prehistoric stuff. So listen in for that uh, second instalment of this horror episode of Prehistories. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.